We're preaching through the book of First Peter. First Peter was a book that was written to a suffering group of people in modern day Turkey, just north of the Taurus Mountains in Asia Minor, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Asia, those areas that you read in the first verses of First Peter chapter one. And now we come to First Peter chapter five. And friends, Peter takes a very important turn because he essentially writes a message strictly to the elders in that local church. And I today, as I speak, not just to our elders, but also to others in leadership in the church, I encourage you to pray for those who are leading Christ's church in this day and age. And I encourage you to pray for our elders in our church and for the future elders who will rise up in God's timing to help lead the church. If you're willing in your own rooms and homes, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter chapter five, I'll read verses one. To verse four. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the New Testament, there are several, you can be seated. (laughs) In the New Testament, there are several words for leader in Quone Greek. A leader who teaches is a didaskalos. A leader who directs is a hegemon, a leader who rules is an archegos, a leader who provides spiritual oversight is a presbyteros, and a leader who oversees is called an episkopos. Peter uses these last two Greek words in this passage, presbyteros and episkopos. And these are formal terms for the office of a spiritual leader in a local congregation. The two words are used interchangeably of the same office. Just like a little league baseball coach can be a, a, an instructor of skills and habits. He teaches them to throw and catch and field the ball. But yes, he's, he's also an administrator. He has to keep the roster and he has to represent the team to the community. So also presbyteros and episkopos are two different dynamics, but they are often used interchangeably in the New Testament for the same office, the office of elder. We get the word Presbyterian from this word presbyteros. It comes from the word presbus, which just means elderly or aged. And so the term Presbyterian from this word simply means a local church who is led by elders. So what is an elder? An elder, a presbyteros, is someone who is valued for wisdom and holds a position of responsibility and authority in a local church. An elder, when they're referred to as an episcopos, often has the nuance of an administrator or a superintendent or of an overseer or of a curator or of a guardian of sorts. And so what do we learn about what it means to be a spiritual leader from Peter in this passage? We learn seven things, and we're going to go quick. First, We learn that there is plurality. You see that in your notes if you have a bulletin. Plurality. In the Bible, when referring to spiritual leaders in the local church, 
Presbyteros and Episcopos are always plural. For example, Presbyteros begins verse 1 of this passage in 1 Peter 5. Literally in Greek word order, it says, the elders, so among you I exhort, not the elder. There's always more than one. In Acts 14, for example, when Paul and Barnabas were on the first missionary journey, they narrowly escaped stoning in Iconium. And when they escape those in Iconium, they go to Lystra and Derby. And when they are there, they heal someone and the people there want to worship them. The chief priest of Jupiter bows down to them and wants to worship them. And Paul says, no, 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 don't worship us. And about that time, the guys from Iconium catch up with them. And then they do stone Paul and Barnabas and they narrowly escape with their life. And you would think that in the context of being nearly beaten to death, you would want to get as far from Dodge as possible. But Paul and Barnabas go back, back through Lystra and Derby, because it was so important to them that in their absence, they raise up local elders in the church. And so Luke, the historian, writes in Acts 14, 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So important was it for Paul and Barnabas that they went at the risk of their life to appoint elders in Lystra and Derby. And during the second missionary journey in Acts 16, Paul and Silas travel to the ancient city of Thrace. They, it was called Philippi by that time. And it was the place where the gospel first spread into Europe. And there they witnessed the conversion of a woman of, who sells purple cloth named Lydia. And they heal a slave girl. They exercise a demon from her. And people are so up in arms that this slave girl who earned them money has now been healed and in her right mind that they also, they also threaten Paul and Silas. And then they go to prison. And when they're in prison, they witness to a Philippian jailer and the jailer comes to Christ. But notice that 10 years later, when Paul writes back to the church at Philippi and the ladies who are studying the book of Philippians will know this in the women's Bible study. That Paul writes in the book of Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Jesus Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers, the episcopoi, and the deacons. Again, you see plurality in the local church. Or I can go on and on. The third missionary journey, you see the same thing. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. There's more than one elder, according to the New Testament. So the first thing you see is that there is plurality. Second, there's parity. Notice that Peter says he's a fellow elder. He stands beside them. He doesn't stand over them. There's more than one of them, and they are equal in authority. That's what parity means, equal in authority. Peter could have easily said, I'm the only game in town. He could have easily said, this is my, this is my thing. You guys follow me. But no, he says, as a fellow elder, I exhort you. He doesn't say, you guys come into my world. Peter goes into their world. He steps into their world. And he, in a sense, mimics the way our Lord Jesus incarnated into our world. He goes where they are. There's parody. In Acts chapter 15, whenever there was a, dis a disturbance among the people of God about whether you should still be circumcised after you became a Christian, 
Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And when they get to Jerusalem, uh, the historian Luke says, they're after much debate, then, then Peter stands up and begins to lead them to a conclusion. But notice, even in, in the um, Jerusalem Council, there's parody. There's much debate. People discuss things. Paul, who was one of the apostles, was sent. He didn't just claim rightful authority and go. He was sent. There's parody in the local church. Before we move on, let me just share one really important thing about the word elder as it relates to parody. The word elder in the New Testament does not refer to an elder's particular age. The term First Peter, uh, Peter uses in First Peter, presbyteros, in verse 1, can, is contrasted with the verse, uh, verse 5, where he uses the word younger. If Peter wanted to speak in terms of chronology, he could have used other words like neanus for older man or neaskenos for younger man. He didn't do that. And while elders are often older, they need not require to be so. Nowhere in the New Testament is a particular age of an elder required. In fact, we have the example in the New Testament, don't we, of a young man who Paul called to help lead the church named Timothy. A young man and a mighty fine elder he was, don't you agree? Two books are named after Timothy in the New Testament. So let me just say a word to the younger men in our congregation. Some of you have amazing leadership gifts. And some of you perhaps are scared about leading in Christ's church. And there's a holy fear about leading in Christ's church. But let me just exhort you and encourage you. Age does not have anything to do with the way the New Testament speaks about being an elder. Wisdom does, yes. Perspective does, yes. You're not a young convert. That must be true. But your age does not come down the list of the things Paul requires. So if you're young, let me just encourage you that you too can lead. You too can lead. And if you're older, gentlemen, some of you are older and we need your leadership gifts. You have experience and you have amazing wisdom. And we want and need that in the years ahead. And if the, the congregation nominates you to be an elder, I pray that you would seriously take that to heart. Because that indeed could be from the Holy Spirit. So, there's first what? There's plurality. Secondly, there's parity. And thirdly, there's a price. There's a Christ. Paul says he is a fellow elder and yet singular. He is a what he is a partaker or he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. When did Paul, when did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ? Well, Peter witnessed the sufferings of Christ, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and also at the cross. When Peter witnessed Christ's suffering, Paul says that he is a singular witness of this. He is unique in that way among the elders. And it's true. He historically was the one who was there with Jesus when he was in the garden. He was there at the cross event whenever Jesus was crucified, although it was a period of when he was running from the Lord and denying him. He witnessed the sufferings of Jesus in a way that was utterly unique. 
But in a general way for all elders, there's a price to pay for leadership. Many of you, men and women who lead organizations in town, you know that this is true regardless of leadership. But in the church, there's a particular price that you pay because you are invited into what is an amazingly intimate arena of people's life. And you get to see the mess that is every single one of us, me, you, all of us. And the elders pay a price, an emotional price, for being involved in the depth and the weightiness of people's sin. And it is a heavy price, but it's a price for which they are well equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit to enter in. He has called them to that task. And in a sense, they witness the sufferings of Christ as they witness people choosing to go the way of the world rather than to walk in obedience to Jesus. Peter, of course, knew this suffering personally, didn't he? In John 21, Jesus told Peter about the final suffering that would await him in his own life. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, Peter, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this, John says, he said to show him but what kind of death he was to experience. And then Jesus says to Peter, what? Come follow me. There's a price to pay. But with that price comes forth a privilege. There's plurality. There's parity. There is a price. And there's a tremendous privilege. Paul uniquely witnesses to the sufferings of Christ and the apostle, and he uniquely shares in the glory of Christ. When did Peter witness Christ's glory? Well, he saw it both before his resurrection and after. He saw it before his resurrection in the Mount of Transfiguration, and he saw it after the resurrection in Jesus' glorified body. Peter has uniquely witnessed the glory of Christ. And in the same way, elders of the church are able to uniquely experience the glory of Christ, not in the way Peter did, of course, because he uniquely in history had a unique perspective. But we get to witness the glory of Christ every time we see marriages that are on the rocks. And there seems like there is no hope. And the elders cry and pray and spend time with people and spend hours on end with them when the case calls for that. And they plead and they yearn, they weep, and they enter into the suffering. And then they see marriages restored. Often, In this church, we've seen marriages restored that have been in real trouble. And there may be some of you that are listening to this whose marriage is also in real trouble. And we want you to know that the Lord has given you tools called the elders of your church to bear some of that burden and be able to walk through it with you. We can lead you to God's word. We can help you think through it together. We want you to know that we want to enter in to your life in a way that helps you flourish, even in the most intimate of relationships in your life, as the Lord would will, and as you would want us to help you and shepherd you in that way. When we see marriages restored, when we see children come to the table, when we see worship happen, there's an incredible privilege as God's elders in this local church. And we get to celebrate that. And the elders, while they pay a price, there's also a deep sense of privilege and joy. And everyone who's been an elder knows that there's a deep deep sense from which when you experience it from the inside, it's hard to explain it. And when you see it from the outside, sometimes it's difficult to understand it. 
It's rich and it's deep. We share in the glory to come. We are a unique partaker in Christ's glory. Fifth, there's a proposition. Peter gives the elders here a proposition. He says, verse two, gives us a command. Shepherd the flock of God that is in that is among you, exercising oversight. Scripture gives us two very, very powerful metaphors for leadership. One is that of a deacon, a diakonos, which literally means one who stirs up dirt as he runs along, runs along the road to help those in need. And the other is the metaphor of a shepherd. In the New Testament, the shepherd is always applied spiritually as a simile for spiritual leadership. Spiritual leaders are like a shepherd. And the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. And so whenever you call Pastor Scott or you call me Pastor Blake, you are saying we are Shepherd Scott, Shepherd Blake. And and in so doing, you're also acknowledging that, that you are a sheep. For example, Paul rolls this metaphor off his tongue so easily. He doesn't say the word pastor or elder in Ephesians chapter four. He uses the metaphor for it. So interchangeable have they become by the time he writes the book of Ephesus. And he gave the apostles, Ephesians 4.11, the prophets, the evangelists, the elders. No, he says the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Shepherd is a metaphor for elder rolled off his tongue, slipped out his pen so easily. Shepherd, it's only applied once in the noun form and three times in the verb form in the New Testament in the context of church leaders. It it characterizes an elder as one who protects, who feeds, who knows, and who leads God's people. And in this verse, exercising oversight describes the governing authority that an elder has for the people of God, a shepherd has for his sheep. Let's explore these qualities of an elder very quickly. First, protects. In the early days of the Old Testament, the institution of elders is linked to those who were the older men in the tribes of Israel who were called to protect the tribe. They were the ones who were the first to go to battle. They were the ones who were called to give wisdom to the younger warriors. It first had a meaning of protection. Thus, the name elder is one who is to protect people from spiritual enemies and, if need be, from physical inconveniences to allow for worship to function as well. They are the ones who are to pave the way for public worship. Second, feeds. The shepherd feeds. By the time of Exodus, the Jewish elders are the ones that are to act as administrators and judges. It was to the elders, the heads of the family, that Moses gave instruction concerning the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12. To guide them in the way of the law. To feed them spiritually. Elders also know. A shepherd knows his sheep. It was to the Jewish elders who, in Exodus 18, Jethro encouraged Moses to call these elders to come and know the sheep. There were so many people that Moses needed help to know each of their needs of justice and mercy. And so they come along to help him. 
Shepherds lead. In Numbers 11, Moses was instructed by God to select 70 men from among the elders to assist him in leadership of the people, as I mentioned. And in the later accounts, the elders of Jerusalem were the ones that were, in fact, to be the judicial guides for the entire nation. We call them the Sanhedrin. So shepherds, they protect. Shepherds feed. Shepherds know and shepherds lead. That is the proposition. That is the command that is given to elders. And so in the New Testament, it's not strange to wonder where the office of elder came from. There was so much history of the elders leading the people. And Jesus, in fact, had a lot to say with the modern day in this time, Jewish elders who were in Jerusalem, who were leading the people astray because they did not recognize him as the Messiah. And Jesus had much to say to the Pharisees and the scribes and those in the Sanhedrin, which had become the elders for the nation. So are you with me? First, there's plurality. Second, there's parity. Third, there is a price. Fourth, there's a privilege. Fifth, there is a proposition, a command given to elders. Sixth, there are personal characteristics. What are these? Well, they are to serve not under compulsion, but they are to serve willingly. That means that they are to serve not by constraint or the force of mere necessity. They are to serve because they want to, willingly and from the heart. We talk about elders having an internal and an external call. The external call comes from the congregation or comes from the outside, but the internal call comes from the inside. No elder should ever serve purely because he is being paid to serve or because he is compelled to serve by others. Elders should serve willingly, Peter says, from the heart. Secondly, they are not to serve for shameful gain, but they are to serve eagerly. An elder motivated by selfish gain is contrasted with an elder who is to serve eagerly. One who serves from selfish gain says that ministry gives me power and this is my identity. And one who serves eagerly steps into the need and says, I serve because my Savior has called me, whatever that price may be. And I do so eagerly, without hesitance. An elder should serve regardless of the thanks that he gets. And I know that um, many of you know this, but if you see your elders, would you please say thank you to them? They're not asking for that, but Will and Paul and Nathan are faithful elders for you, and they are amazing men. And so when you see them, please, please say thank you. And it's a profound privilege for me to be a pastor in an official sense where I am paid to shepherd you full time. It's a joy. And I feel during October uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, the weight of gratitude I feel in the way that you have honored me and Pastor Scott is profound. And I just want to say thank you very much for that. The third characteristic of an elder is that we are not to domineer over those in our charge, but we are to be examples. The word for example here is the word typos. It's a type, it's a pattern, it's a model. One who serves as an example isn't perfect, but they point people to Jesus. And as broken men leading the church, the chief way that we know to point people to Jesus is by modeling in our life the same repentance that we ask of each of you. And so we are not, obviously, we are not perfect men. But we want to grow in our repentance. 
And we want to grow in our humility for we have much to learn. And we want to grow in our eagerness and we want to grow in our willingness. But we want to pursue our king and we want to say, hey, come follow us as we follow Christ. Again, whatever the price may be, because the privilege is profound. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, brothers, join me in imitating me. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. The seventh thing we learned about spiritual leadership and the last thing is that there is a poverty of self-righteousness. Notice that these elders are called shepherds, but these shepherds are also under the chief shepherd, Peter says. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders, for all they are, are first sheep. Children grow up and leave the house, but sheep always need a shepherd. And elders continually need the work of their Savior. And they are those under the authority of the chief shepherd, even as we sit under the authority of elders in the local church. The Lord's self-revelation as a shepherd himself is not merely a metaphor with which the people could relate, but it shows the comprehensive care that Jesus himself, who is the chief shepherd, has for us. Isaiah 40 reassures us of God's faithfulness when he begins to stray and he says that God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those who are young. The metaphor of a shepherd speaks not only to the nature of the care received, but also to the extent of it. There's a holistic care for us because of Jesus, our chief shepherd. Jesus, our chief shepherd, didn't stay in the confines of his house. He came out to the field where we were. Jesus, the chief shepherd, came to us and he gave his life for us so that we could be delivered from our great enemies of sin and death. Jesus, the great shepherd, protects us in that way. Jesus, the great shepherd, feeds us by his word and we partake of his body and his blood spiritually when we come to the Lord's table. Jesus knows us. He knows every hair on our head. And Jesus leads us in the greater self-awareness and a greater hope in the glory to come especially during this day of COVID, the hope that is to come. Jesus leads us triumphantly into that. When Asaph in in Psalm 80 is trying to wrap his mind around how he could describe God as a good poet, he says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, he prays, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And so friends, there are a lot of things to learn in this very short passage about spiritual leadership. We learn that there is plurality. There's more than one. There's parity. There's equality among them. There's a price to pay as a leader in Christ's church, but there's also a profound privilege. There's a proposition given to us that we should be shepherds. There's also personal characteristics that he requires of us. And we have a poverty of self-righteousness. Because Jesus himself is our righteousness and he is our only hope. Jesus himself says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. 
elders know the voice of the shepherd and they rest not on their own righteousness, but they rest on the righteousness of Christ alone. This is Peter's exhortation to us. And though he is writing this to men in the New Testament, let me just have a word to the women just for a moment. Ladies, many of you have incredible leadership gifts too. and We want to help you use those gifts for the glory of God and the building up of his church. Would you help us identify those gifts and help you lead in a way? The way our women's ministry is taking off is beautiful and it's such an encouragement. But every dynamic, every aspect of our church submits ourselves to the chief shepherd under the authority of our elders who look to Jesus, who is the one, the true shepherd, who came to give his life for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Father, in this small passage, there is so much to learn about what it means to shepherd. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to pray for our elders, that you would help us to step up for those men in our congregation who are called to lead as elders and that you would give them courage to do so. I pray, Father, for the wives of those men who have been nominated or will be nominated in the future, Lord, that you would give them the courage also to let their men lead in this way that those women wouldn't, wouldn't hold them back. And in the same way, I pray that men, husbands of, of women who are profound leaders in the church, though not called to lead as elders of the church, I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to help free our wives up, to also use the leadership gifts with courage and strength and fortitude. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us as we lead your church. The men of this church called to be elders, would you strengthen them? And would you help each of us to look to you who is the chief shepherd who has laid his life down for us so that Jesus in you, we might find life to the full. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.